Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. Today we are going to be answering questions from the mailbag. So we have a couple of different topics that we're going to be covering over the course of this podcast. We hope we hope you enjoy the format. It's a little bit different than what we normally do, but we, we think that there's been a couple of really great questions that have come in that we wanted to share with you. So let's first start with the rule of 72. We've had a couple people ask us, what is the rule of 72 and how do I use it? The rule of 72 is basically a way that you can determine how quickly um, you will double your money. The formula is uh, doubling the time, the number of years, like how long it will take, equals 72 divided by whatever growth rate you're you know, suspecting that you will get. So for example, if you took 72 and you divided it by six, that would give you 12 years. So in 12 years, you would double your money. If you took 72 and divided it by eight, then every nine years, you would be doubling your money. So that's the simple formula. So when people say, how long will it take me to double my money? We can say, well, based on the risk you're willing to take and projected um, you know, growth rates on average, this is how long it will take. So again, just an example was take 72 divided by eight gives you nine, take 72 divided by six gives you 12. So those, that's um, the rule of 72. Simple uh, answer to one of the questions that we've seen coming up from, from time to time. A not so simple answer uh, is regarding SIPC insurance. And because of some things that have recently come out in the news, we've had a few people ask us about their accounts being insured under SIPC. Let me back up and explain what SIPC is. So SIPC is a sort of an insurance that protects customers that are members of, so like a brokerage firm that's a member of a, a broker dealer, if that firm file uh, financially fails. So if a, a company goes bankrupt, in other words, the coverage, the CIPIC coverage is up to $500,000 per customer for all accounts at the same institution. And this includes a maximum of $250,000 for cash. So it doesn't, obviously, CIPIC doesn't protect investors about, uh, for like investment, um, performance and those sort of things. This is just in the situation that a brokerage firm fails. We know that with some of the things that came out about GameStop, you know, there was a lot of concern with Robinhood and what was going on there. And so we've had a couple, 
questions come in about uh, CIPIC coverage. So um, you definitely, depending on who you use for a broker-dealer, they might actually have additional insurance on top of that, but that's the basic of CIPIC. So I just want to restate that. CIPIC is a insurance that a brokerage firm carries and they're covered. And CIPIC stands for, by the way, Security Investor Protection Corporation. This insurance um, doesn't work the same way as FDIC. It only kicks in if your brokerage firm fails and the securities um, that should belong to investors go missing because of that. The insurance company does not cover again against any kind of market loss on there. Uh, so that's been a question that has come up. And, and another question that's sort of relative to that is about, uh, I had somebody ask the question, is my IRA protected? And I needed you know further clarification about what they were asking for on that. I wasn't sure if they were asking about protection with regards to like brokerage insurance, like I just mentioned, or if they meant, is it protected against creditors, bankruptcy, um, those kinds of things. So it, with their IRA being in a brokerage firm, of course, they have the $500,000 $500, in CIPIC. But then the other side of the, the equation is whether or not the IRA is protected from bankruptcy. So this goes back a little bit. Um, there were some bankruptcy laws that changed back in 2005. Uh, and some of you may not even realize that that happened. But that at that point in time, there was, it stands for Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Customer Protection Act of 2005. That particular act put into limitation um, that a hundred or a million dollars of traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs are protected. And SEP IRAs, simple IRAs, and most rollover IRAs, rollover IRAs are fully protected from creditors and bankruptcy regardless of the dollar amount. So again, it depends on the type of IRA that that you have. So uh, again, one comment was regards to CIPIC. Another comment was regards to bankruptcy and creditors protection. Hopefully that helps answer the question a little bit more. There's, I can certainly dig in if there's uh, more questions around that. We really appreciate folks sending us uh, questions for us to be able to answer. Uh, if, if you do have any questions, feel free to send them in. We thought this was a great opportunity too, since we're talking about protection and, and limits, to remind people about FDIC and NCUA protection at the same time. FDIC stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which covers deposits at the banks. So that's a bank insurance. So, for example, if your IRA or custodian um, is a bank or a trustee is a FDIC member bank and the investments in your IRA deposited products by F FDIC, such as a CD or an IRA, you know, like a savings IRA, then there are some limitations on the FDIC insurance. So $250,000 in FDIC FDIC insurance on deposits you hold at the same bank in other ownership categories, such as regular checking accounts and non-IRA deposits. NCUA is the National Credit Union Association that provides insurance for credit union accounts similar to FDIC, but it's specific to NCUA. So when you see 
a bank or a credit union that says member of FDIC or member of NCUA, then you know that they're carrying the insurance. The maximum insurance on an NCUA account is also $250,000 per account type. So you could be insured for $250,000 for funds in your regular share account is what they call it and your IRA account. Uh, so each would get um, $250,000. So again, we hope that you found this information helpful with regards to protections and insurance on your accounts. One of the other questions that we recently got was uh, regarding an investment policy statement. Now, if you work with us before, you know that we walk through the components of an investment policy statement, maybe not any formal, you know, like document that says investment policy statement, but we certainly ask all of the questions and have all of the documentation. But I thought it was a good time to um, to brush off uh, some of the the. Uh, education that I've done in the past around investment policy statements. First of all, what is an investment policy statement? Uh, why, why would you want to have one? And what are some of the components? So the primary reason to develop an investment policy statement is really to help you stay on track and avoid making mistakes and kind of emotionally um, getting, keeping yourself somewhat um, in line with what the decisions that you want to make. So there's lots of research that shows most individuals react and withdraw money from the market at the wrong times because of nerves, right? So if you can go back to this document that you can create, then you can say, okay, this is my, you know, this is my statement. I'm going to stick with it. So one of the, um, one of the reasons investors tend to do better with you know, professionals is that they'll stick with it and they have somebody to talk to when there is some concerns about what's going on in the market. So having an investment policy statement and rereading it once or twice a year during those relatively volatile times tends to be a good guide for people uh, if they aren't working or even if they are working with somebody. So you can build your own investment policy statement. And again, this is just a, a document that um, has sort of an investment plan and provides guidance for consistent, informed decisions. The goal is to set out the rules and then to follow it, you know, for yourself to follow it and down markets to avoid better, uh, better behavior, right? And, and not making rash decisions. Um, research, as I mentioned, shows that um, resisting emotional impulse to trade could potentially improve your overall uh, performance as much as as five percent. Um, we think that that's important for people to understand and provide guidance for consistent and informed decision making. You know, again, to avoid the oh no, the market dropped and I lost fifteen percent. I'm getting out. Nope. Go back to your investment policy statement. What did you say that you would do? The components of an investment policy statement, and by the way, you'll probably hear me refer to that as IPS. That's what we tend to call it within the profession. Um, I know we try not to use too many acronyms, but sometimes you know, those full words, uh, we just kind of get used to calling them by their initials. We have, we, you can actually create a document that has all of these components. So um, critical information about you, like your tax bracket, um, adequate liquidity. Do you have enough uh, emergency funds? Do you have insurance to cover what you need? Um, what are your birth dates? So we know what the timeline is. Definitely goals and objectives of the portfolio and the time horizon. And each each bucket um, ha can have different goals and objectives. As we've talked about in other classes, there are other podcasts 
we like you to set up different objectives for different monies, right? Because college money has different objectives than retirement money. We do need to know your risk profile. That's a part of the IPS. So we talk to you about like your, what's your risk tolerance. Then we can determine the overall allocation for each of those different buckets, or you can determine the overall allocation for each of those buckets. You want to know what the desired characteristics of the investments are, like what are the manager uh, tenures, the fees, the comparison index, the ranking, the risk and category. We kind of have within our firm, we sort of have a global um, overall characteristic of the of the managers and the fees and and how they're doing and we sort of manage it internally but that's something that you would want to be looking at as well constraints on investments in portfolio uh, what not to do are there any funds that you absolutely do not want sold or absolutely do not want bought in the portfolio uh, and again this is something that you can look back on and say oh yes remember I said this the time frame expectations for rebalancing, are you going to go in and do that once a year? Are you going to do it quarterly? How often are you going to be reviewing within the different categories? We encourage people sometimes to take different categories and review them on a stagger, or you can obviously set time aside once a year to do that as well. And the parameters for selling investments due to poor performance, not poor performance because the market is correcting or the market is not performing well, but general performance of those holdings. So when you're measuring them against, you know, the indexes or the category average, you know, when are you going to let go of those so that you're not saying, well, they've already gone down. I, I don't want to, I don't want to sell those, or even if they've gone up, but they're still underperforming the general uh, category or index, what are the parameters around there? Um, so those are important things that uh, you would want to be looking at in an IPS. Uh, some of the other uh, ideas that we like to throw out there are things like uh, some constraints. So a common constraint put in an IPS is the maximum percentage of money in any one investment. People just starting out typically don't have this. Um, it becomes an issue when one investment does really well or is inherited. I've worked with people who don't want to sell an investment because their grandfather bought it. Uh, we also don't want, um, sometimes there's a large capital gain and we don't want that capital gain to definitely, you know, always drive we, the, the ultimate selling, but we, we want to talk about what are the strategies behind, um, you know, selling some of the positions if they've become overweighted and how to deal deal with that uh, from a tax perspective at the same time. So one exception may be um, something such as rental property. That might be um, a discussion because it's it's less liquid. Another component is using alternative investments such as commodities, real estate trusts, real property, collectibles, bitcoins, etc. Um, deciding early what percentages of your investments you're willing to have in those particular categories can be important because again, if if they go up, you know, people look at it and think, oh, it's going to continue. We suggest that you actually rebalance to keep it within the realm and not let your emotions drive the fact that you could quote unquote be losing out on future gains. The money's still going to be there. We're just suggesting that you take some off the table. Also deciding which investments to avoid or give special consideration to would be important. Like I said, many people like the idea of investing 
um, making a difference. So they might want to do some social impact or, you know, there might be companies out there that they don't want to do any investing in. So again, deciding where you want your money to go and where you don't want it to go. It is definitely something referred to as um, impact investing is becoming more common and and some people want their monies to match their values. You can also say no oil and gas or pharmaceutical companies if you're if you have values uh, value conflicts. So again, we just want to know, or you should know, what are you what are you trying to avoid? I've already mentioned some tax consequences. If you're in a fairly high tax bracket, looking for uh, funds that have lower turnover, or maybe even individual stocks. Um, could be a better uh, approach to you if the mutual fund has a lot of turnover, creating a lot of capital gain distributions that could create some unexpected uh, taxes. So you want to be aware of that before it actually happens. When you think about timeframes, you know, questions that you might want to ask is how often are you going to review the document? What are the target dates? Uh, how often are you going to review your asset allocation and specific investments and when? So it, um, again, I, we suggest to people that they stick to that. So if there's a market correction and it's not on your schedule of when you're going to review the asset allocation, yeah, you might want to look at the asset allocation and rebalance the portfolio at that point in time, but that's not the time to be selling just because the market corrected. It might be an opportunity to buy in a particular sector that has gone down. Uh, we generally look at June for potential asset allocation, but we have done some other dates in the past based on overall market performance at the end of the year. We definitely look for possible tax harvesting in November and December. Uh, who's going to complete the review is an important expectation too. Is that going to be something you do? Are you going to hire somebody to do that once a year? Who do you want to be on your team, if anybody, when it comes to timeframes and expectations? And what are the changes that would trigger a rebalancing? Is it if a category is off by 5%, 10%, like what is it going to be that's going to trigger that? And then of course, if rebalancing need, is needed, who is going to do that? Some parameters that you might want to set for selling. Um, again, be very specific when it comes to that. To be clear, the purpose of this is to avoid the emotional reaction to the markets and selling that is so closely to the investors. The market drop is not a reason to sell specific investment investments. You need to identify your reasons. Common ones would be the rating for the Morningstar has dropped. Maybe it's gone from five to four. That's still really good. But what if it goes from like five to three? So, you know, what's the reason that it dropped so much? I'm not saying that's a reason to sell. I'm saying that's a reason to investigate. It's one of the purposes. Certainly, if the standard deviation has increased quite a bit or the sharp ratio has dropped, all of those are reasons you could choose the investment, um, you know, and are reasons to keep it or sell it or replace it if you're seeing that modification. Another thing to look at is, um, has the investment strayed from its asset class, meaning you originally purchased it because it was large cap value and now it's mid cap growth. I mean, that definitely is going to change in your portfolio. Just reviewing what is said about the investment and seeing what has changed from when you chose it can help you decide whether to replace it or to keep it. Um, so we hope that this has helped you and certainly um, given you some ideas to be thinking about when it comes to creating your own investment policy statement so that you don't react to the market uh, and what you're hearing in the news, but instead you react to the policy that you've set in place 
for managing your investments. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We know it's a little shorter than it normally is, but we hope you enjoyed it. Again, we thank the audience for sending in your questions. And certainly if you have more, we'd love to hear them. We uh, have enjoyed kind of putting together the the, uh, mailbag episode from time to time. If you like what you hear, please feel free to rate us on iTunes and Spotify if that's what you're listening to and send us a note if there's any questions that you have. And we'd love it if you would subscribe to our blog as well. Uh, We hope you all, again, have enjoyed it. And don't forget, uh, I, I did at the very beginning. I got right into this with our questions. We also love to hear what your favorite wines are and we'd love to feature them in the future. As I uh, prepare to head north for the for the summer, uh, I'm definitely looking at some of the, the wineries in the Finger Lakes again to get back to my favorite area. And this weekend we'll be celebrating with a little bit of goldfinch from Prejean. I know I've mentioned them in the past. I'm not a huge Riesling fan generally, but they are one that I absolutely love. We hope you will give it a try as well. We hope you all enjoyed this and have a great day. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dine. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.